Let's open up the uh, Word of God to 1 Kings 12, and we'll conclude our survey of the life of Solomon this morning. 1 Kings chapter 12. And uh, I want to emphasize this principle this morning. That I have to fix my computer screen first. Be right back, folks. Never happens in practice, Dennis. I'm not sure why. That's why they call it practice, right? Almost there. Good, yeah. Let's focus on this principle today as we look at this last passage in the life of Solomon. Uh, when spirituality or discipleship or commitment to Christ in the Christian life is packaged as fun, fast, and easy. You better run, not walk to the exits. Um, we have a, a lot of interesting uh, approaches to Christianity nowadays that might be uh, Americanizing Christianity, but it's not really Christianizing America very much. And we're going to think about that theme. Uh, when it comes to convenience, um, that's not the way, best way to become committed to anything make it convenient. If it's convenient, it's not really commitment. Okay? Talking about some committed people, aren't we thankful for, and thus we pray for those who serve in the active military and who are peace officers and who are firefighters. So let's pray for uh, the Holy Spirit who inspired this text and has preserved it to illumine it so that we could learn some principles about the way God thinks and the way God wants us to prioritize and make choices. Uh, to his glory and the process and the product of all of that. And uh, Zane, uh, Britton, if you would, please pray for us in that direction, okay? Thank you, Zane. Uh, any, anybody have a bulletin uh, handy there? I want to thank everybody for uh, sitting in your normal positions today because, uh, you know, last week I was really kind of disoriented there. And uh, I could tell when I listened to the recording of the message, but... Uh, I wanted you to see uh, Pastor Brad and James enjoyed everybody sitting out of their quote-unquote quote, comfort zone last Sunday in the spirit of Clergy Appreciation Day. Today, however, you're free to return to your preferred spots, but be sure to buckle your seat belts. Make sure the tray table is in its upright and locked position. Right now. Yeah. So that, was, that was fun. I appreciate that. And boy, we had a very nice Clergy Appreciation Day, but... Uh, it seems like we just did that last year, didn't we? I mean, you know, appreciate the effort there. But this is the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and I hope everybody had as nice of Thanksgiving as we did. But the problem with Thanksgiving is kind of like going on a cruise. Carol, what do you, when you go on a cruise, you gain five pounds. Is that the average, national average, right? Uh, I haven't heard statistics, but I bet the average American probably gains two or three pounds over Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, so, Anthony, in honor of that, here are Top seven signs you may, I'm not saying you specifically, okay, uh, have eaten too much Thanksgiving dinner. Number seven, before anyone else can get to the table, you ate the whole turkey, a bowl of gravy, a platter of ham, and all of the napkins. So, Clay, that's not good if you did that. After the meal, it took your family almost two hours to pry you out of your chair. That's not good. The next day, when you stepped on your bathroom scale, it slowly compressed into a molten ball of hot plastic. Yeah. 
Number four, on Black Friday, total strangers in the mall parking lot walked up and volunteered to help push you through the front door. By the end of the meal, you had worn down the working end of your fork to a large round blob. You're eating too fast there, people. Slow it down. Number two, we're going to do the last two, whether you like it or not. Uh, two hours after the meal, your tummy slowly expanded into twice the size of Plymouth Rock. I thought that was going to go over better than that. Uh, <laughs> the Plymouth Rock reference is pretty good, right? Un- unsolicited commentary, my good man. No. Yeah. yeah, you know what? It's kind of like gender-neutral bathrooms. Whatever you want. Whatever you want on that. It doesn't matter. Yeah, we, we, we practiced that all day yesterday. And I, I messed up the timing, didn't I? Sorry, man. Uh, yesterday you got on a treadmill, and after only two minutes, you started sweating gravy. Yeah, um, Lord willing, we're going to finish Solomon today, and I hope it's been helpful to you. But uh, we're going to move into the Christmas uh, direction. And I wanted to do Luke 2, and I was thinking about it over the, the long Thanksgiving weekend. I'd kind of had it lined up just to do it in order. But then I thought, you know what, I don't want to, the last message that I do here before Christmas, I don't, I want to, don't, I want to be talking about the birth of Jesus as we get closer to the actual holiday. And so we're going to look at Luke 2, Anthony, but we're going to flip it in, in reverse order in that the, the last passage in that chapter, 239 through 52, is talking about uh, the Lord's first visit to Jerusalem for the Passover, the famous incident there. So we'll deal with that next week, Lord willing. Uh, the 221 through 38 passage is talking about infant Jesus being dedicated at the temple and how you see a good example of Old Testament believers, right? Like Anna and Simeon had been looking forward to the promised Messiah, and they had been told they were going to see him, and they get to see him in Jerusalem. So we'll look at that on the 11th, and then we'll get to the famous Christmas passage on the 18th. On Christmas Day and New Year's Day, which are Sundays this year, uh, we'll have special services rather than 9.30 to noon for the whole thing. It'll be 10 to 11.30 which is kind of our normal thing we do on Christmas. Uh, so we'll kind of do worship and first hour activities only. So just be aware of that, both on Christmas Day and on New Year's Day. And James is going to speak on Christmas Day. And the current pastor is going to speak on uh, January 1. But for some context for our last uh, glimpse into the life of Solomon, and really the aftermath of his uh, life today, I want you to notice that in the first king's uh narrative, toward the end of that, we see first an emphasis on his building projects and his accomplishments. Then we see his apostasy, uh, not just permitting his foreign wives to worship their gods, but actually being participating, participating in that himself. And then we saw last week and this week the aftermath of Solomon's apostasy, which was prophesied that this great nation that he had built with God's help, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants, splits into two nations that are really kind of at each other's throats from the very get-go. If you wanted to just kind of see kind of a schematic diagram of the trajectory of his life spiritually, he starts great, and for a long time he was doing quite well, but he slowly drifts away from his commitment to to God, 
And we know he has a partial recovery because he writes some wisdom literature after he hits rock bottom. But chapter 11, and we're in chapter 12 today, talks about him hitting rock bottom. And here's a nice poster from somebody from Vacation Bible School I borrowed from the Internet. Uh, Solomon loved his wives. Solomon's wives loved idols. So Solomon's heart turned from God. And we see described the aftermath of Solomon's apostasy. So Israel, the ten northern tribes, has been in rebellion against Judah. So we go from one prosperous country to two struggling countries that are not only surrounded by enemies, but are kind of at each other's throats as well. And so we have what I call the UTI becomes the DTI, the United Tribes of Israel under Saul, David, and Solomon, uh, becomes the divided tribes of Israel. And today we're going to look at Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, the the larger half of the split, uh, and his issues that uh, he deals with. Uh, that's a, a map of the area, and after Solomon dies, we go from one country to two. The southern country was called Judah. The northern separate country was called Israel at that point. So prior to that, Israel can refer to other things. But during this time slot, Israel is the northern kingdom as opposed to the southern kingdom of Judah. Right. So that brings us to our passage today. We're going to break it down like this. First in verses 25 to 27, we're going to see the king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam's selfishly centered Fear was that if his people worshipped God correctly in Jerusalem, they left, had to get their passport and leave their country and go to the southern country to worship there in the central sanctuary, which was God's will, irregardless of the political situation, uh, they would not be welded to him. They might even kill him. So he's selfishly concerned about that. Can you imagine a politician using religion for political purposes? Trying to manipulate religious leaders for political purposes, it happens. And it goes back as far as this, if not before. And then the second part, we'll see Jeroboam's spiritually corrupt folly. He marketed worship. He marketed commitment to make it easy and fun and convenient. And when that happens, folks, it may draw a crowd and raise a lot of money, but uh, you need to walk back runaway be better from that. So let's look at the first part of this. Look at verses 25 through 27. And um, what I want to do is kind of give you a paraphrase, an extended paraphrase today of those verses. Uh, then, after the death of Solomon and the split, now we have two countries and Jeroboam's in charge of the northern one, the larger one with the ten tribes. Then Jeroboam built up Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. That was the first capital of the northern kingdom and ends up being in Samaria, the city of Samaria later, but this was the initial capital, just like Philadelphia was the first capital of the United States. And he built up Peniel also. There are strategic reasons for that. Then he said to himself, my kingdom, my people will go back to the house of David, back to the dynasty of David centered in Jerusalem, if the people offer sacrifices in the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. If they have to get the passport, go out of my country, go down to Judah. They may rethink this whole split between the two countries. For the heart of this people will turn back to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam. Now let's look at a map here. And again, this is our basic map showing you 
the southern kingdom, which was the smaller, two tribes, the larger, with Shechem as the first capital, but it will later become Samaria, as we said. Uh, Jerish is in a country or city, I should say, that I had, I'm sure I'd seen on biblical maps before of the Old Testament, but I never thought anything about it, really, until I got to go there the first time in 03, during a day off from teaching it in Amman. And this thing, those of you who went on the uh, Jordan Extension back in was it 2006, went to Israel with the Jordan Extension. Yeah, uh, you know, half the group, or more than half the group flew back home, but we had like three days in Jordan. We went across the river, and that was the first major place we went was Jerish. And it's uh, not mentioned directly, significantly in the Bible, but it has been extensively excavated. It's just miles and miles of stuff they've dug up, and it's really quite an impressive sight. But just notice now, uh, his first capital is Shechem. And when it says he built it, it means he built it. He means he built it up. Uh, built it up, especially from a strategic point of view. As he also did this city called Peniel. And Peniel is on the east side of the Jordan River, uh, just a little south of Jerish. And it's a particularly important place because there's a pass there that most of the military operations that would invade might come from the east usually from the north or the south, and then from the east, would have to go through. So that's a particularly important place. And so he's doing a good thing, Steve. The first thing he's doing, basically, is, is shoring up his national defense. And that's probably a good thing to do, isn't it? I think that's your, any chief executive's number one job, I would suppose, if you're going to run the country, is try to protect your country from military invasion and, and enemies. So that's the first thing he does, and that's very legitimate. No problem there. But here's the problem. Uh he says to himself, thinking big picture, oh my goodness, you know, the temple is in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem's in Judah, the, the different country now. And I'm trying to prop up my own country, and I'm afraid if people go to Jerusalem, why would they go to Jerusalem? That's where the temple is. That's where at least three times a year, Jewish men are supposed to go for a Passover, Pentecost, and tabernacles, right? So at least three times a year, you're going to have a vast number uh, of his nation going to Jerusalem and the rest of them wishing they had time and money to go to Jerusalem. And he's afraid their hearts are going to turn back and they're going to want to reconnect South Korea, North Korea kind of thing, reunification, East Germany, West Germany kind of thing. And so he's more concerned about his own political stability than he is in honoring God. Back in chapter 11, God sent a prophet to this guy, Jeroboam, the leader of the northern kingdom, and said, hey, here's my coat. I'm going to take it off. He tore it into 12 pieces, and he said, you're going to get 10 pieces. And uh, Solomon's son is going to get two pieces, 10 tribes, two tribes. Remember that? And God says to that prophet, hey, Jeroboam, if you'll do the right thing, if you'll continue to worship me, including in in, in Jerusalem at the temple, despite the political divide, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you a whole separate dynasty, paralleling David's. But if you go to other gods, I'm going to put you out of business. So with that ringing in his ears, there's no doubt he knew what the deal was supposed to be. He looks at short-term political gain, and he basically sells his soul in order to try to build a Berlin Wall kind of a thing to keep his people from going to the temple. And he's going to give them an offer of convenience in worship to make it easy. Now, I'm all for convenience in the sense I like electric lights, I like a heater, I like an air conditioner. But it seems to me like uh, 
as I look at modern evangelicalism, it seems like to me a lot of people want to front load the terms of salvation, uh, add works that don't need to be there for receiving salvation, and then they seem to want to soft pedal the radical requirements of true disciples for Christ, for believers, you know. And I think that's a problem. You know, it's, it's popular, people like it, but it's a problem. We're going to see that's kind of what this political leader is going to do when he had every opportunity to be a great leader and start his own positive dynasty, he just blows it. Uh, now, here's the thing. I think sometimes uh, we we read the Old Testament, and we know there was a split after Solomon, and we just assume that was bad news from the beginning. I think God is, and several of the other commentators have said this too, so this is unique with me. Uh, I think God approved and sanctioned the political division of the kingdom as a Divine discipline on Solomon, right? Even though he continues Solomon's house because we've got to get the Messiah here. But he never approved the theological division that Jeroboam comes up with here. The idea was, okay, we're going to have two separate countries, but you're not supposed to be enemies, nor is the northern country supposed to uh, compete with the worship system established by God in Jerusalem. Okay, so there's a, there is a difference there. Uh, and I think sometimes we don't bring that out. Now, I know Anthony knows this because he's seen this in World Religions recently, but in Cameron, but why do I put LORD in all caps and then YHWH all caps next to it? I know James knows it too, but why, why do you do that, Brad? Well, you know, you've got two different words for LORD in the Old Testament. Adonai is one, but the most important one used over 6,000 times is Yahweh. Now, because... Uh, the oldest Hebrew texts don't have vowels. You have to kind of insert the vowels. We're not even sure what the vowels are, but the best guess is it's Y-A-H-W-E-Y. But if you just transliterate that text into English, there are no vowels, so you just put those four uh, consonants there, Y-H-W-H. It's called the tetragrammaton. How many? Tetra stands for what? Yeah, the four letters. And the importance of this, and, and so English translators to help help us out when they take the other word that means Lord in a different way, when they when they are translating Adonai into English, they put capital L, lowercase O, lowercase R, lowercase D. But Dennis, when they're translating this particular word, YHWH, the tetragrammaton term, they always put all four letters in caps even if it may be a slightly smaller font. I think you'll see that as a as a uh, convention in your in a good Bible translation, whatever translation you've used. And that's all important because Yahweh is a unique word in the Old Testament that is only applied to the true God. The word God, Elohim, can refer to true gods or false gods. The word Adonai can refer to true God, the true God or false gods, or even to human figures with authority. Lord means sir or master or somebody with more rank than I've got. But this particular word is called the covenantal name for God. It's the salvation name. The Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, I will have everything I need to be what he wants me to be. That's what Psalm 23.1 means, right? And that's not Adonai. That's Yahweh. Every time you see that, you can really say the God of salvation. And if you're a believer, okay, as a believer, you should say, when you see all caps for Lord in the Old Testament, Translate that, read that, 
the, the God of my salvation has told me to do this, promised me this. One thing he promises us as far as our standing before God, he says as far as the, the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. Now, how far is that? In, in meters, how far is east is from the west? What do you think, Joe? Like 5,000 meters? A lot. It's like infinity, right? That's your standing as a believer on your first day, on your last day, on your, on your worst day, as far as your, your uh, righteous standing, your legal standing before God. So Yahweh, the God of salvation, the God who established a central sanctuary to underscore a principle. There was one place it was proper in the Old Testament as they're waiting for God to bring the Savior into the world to worship God through sacrifice. That teaches you a principle about there's only one acceptable sacrifice, one acceptable place to find the sacrifices you need. You know, how does that apply to Jesus? Like maybe he's the one and only Savior, right? That's it. So this is, this is really important stuff. So, again, I think we tend to read this as English readers and say, well, see, they should have never broke off at all. According to the prophetic word in chapter 11, this was God's discipline on Solomon's dynasty and his house, and it was approved. It would have been blessed by God fully. But, in fact, it gets warped from the beginning. They end up with 19 kings before they're destroyed 254 years later by the Assyrians in the 8th century B.C. And not a single one of those kings is any good spiritually. I mean, Jeroboam's about as good as it gets, and he's not very good. So we've got big problems, and it goes back to a politician trying to use religion to promote his short-term uh, political uh, agenda. And that can happen today with Democrats or Republicans, okay? And uh, somebody, I guess Chip Ingram kind of convinced me, not personally, he doesn't know me personally, but on the screen there on Wednesday nights uh, when he talked about politics, he said, however you vote and however the votes fall, you need to pray for the spiritual conditions of these people before, during, and after their elections. And I, I was like a kick, of, kick, of the, kick to the head for me because I had been praying that something would keep one person from being elected and somehow God could use this other person that you can't, you can't use the baptism technique, but just from the Supreme Court alone has got to be a better choice. I was hoping that would happen. And then I thought, I really haven't prayed for his or her spiritual status, if ever. Maybe I should probably pray for something like that. So thank you, Chip Ingram, wherever you are. Okay? <laughs> Now let's go to the second part. We saw his selfishly centered fear causes him uh, to decide we got to do something uh, to keep the folks home and uh, not go worship in the actual temple of God that he established uniquely and specifically for his people, regardless of the political, we draw the political lines. So look at verses 28 through 33. We're going to see Jeroboam's from his selfishly centered fear to his spiritually corrupt folly. He marketed worship. He packaged and presented worship to make it easy and convenient, albeit it was heretical. Other than that, no problem. You know, And I'm not saying everything that's easy and convenient is heretical, but it's generally a shortcut. Okay? Have you noticed, um, and I think this guy, Jake, whatever his last name was, is probably a nice guy, but you know, there's a guy, uh, Body by Jake, he used to have these infomercials, and like every six months, he would have this one piece of equipment that, you know, after like three days on this, you're an Olympic champion. That's all you need, you know. And it's incredible. And they're always like 
$198. And, you know, for six months, this is the thing you got to have. And then you buy that, and you try it for three days, and then you find out, you know, this is a good place for me to hang my clothes on, you know. And, you know, it's really not the design for it. And you end up not being an Olympic champion in anything, you know. And I'd love to be an Olympic champion in anything, but not going to be there. Maybe the Senior Olympics. uh, But, uh, now, you know, I'm not going to compete in that uh, until I get to be at least 80. Because it just, I mean, you know what? I mean, me and Ken could just, we could whip up on those people up, up there. This, you, know, you know that? We could just put them in the dirt, but it wouldn't be fair. So I'm going to wait till I'm 80, and then Ken will put me at my walker, and we'll do the uh, Senior Olympics. And I, I apologize for offending all of you seniors out there. But, uh, yeah, he kind of marketed worship using a business model approach to make it easy, politically correct, and convenient even though it's theologically abhorrent to God, and you probably ought to factor things like that in when you're coming up with religious alternatives. So the king took counsel, and he made two calves of gold. i, I got to have something spectacular and new and novel to put at two separate worship centers, even though there's only Bonnie. According to Deuteronomy, according to Moses, there's one central sanctuary you're supposed to go to. First it was portable. When it was portable, what was it called? Tabernacle. Then it's permanent. Solomon built it. It's the temple. That was the place, regardless of your political affiliation. Okay, that was the place. But I don't want you going down there because you might want to stay. So uh, i tell you what, we're going to build two worship centers, one in the south part of our country, one in the north part. And rather than having and trying to construct everything that Solomon built, which is way beyond our ability to do, we'll just put something new and flashy and shiny. We'll put a calf of gold in each one of those places, and that will draw a crowd. It'll be good for religion, business. It'll be good for tourism too. Everybody wants, wants to see this. Now, calves of gold. Does that sound familiar? Where do you, where do we see calves of gold being worshipped or a calf of? Gold? Yeah, I mean Moses goes up in the mountain for forty days to get the law, and his brother, his his Aaron, the first high priest, uh, is fabricating this golden calf. Now, when Moses confronts him, he says. Hey, I don't know what happened. They just gave me all the, all the gold. I just threw it in a fire, and out came this calf. That's, that was remember that was his cover story. So you got to have plausible deniability, and that made a lot of sense, right? But uh, yeah, this is unbelievable. Nobody kind of thought. I think we've seen this movie before, but history repeats itself. And he said to the people, "It's too inconvenient for you to go all the way down to Jerusalem." Now remember, I mean, it, there was a trip there. You know, there would have been a trip there. Now. You know, he's talking from his capital. And if you live near Dan, which is north of the Sea of Galilee, that'd be a long trip to go to Jerusalem. So he's, you know, a lot of his people live in Galilee. So he's got a point. It would be more convenient in that sense to have a shorter trip for uh, worship purposes. So he's saying, hey, it's too inconvenient for you to go all the way down to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. Now, we know his motive from the previous verses. It's nothing to do with really his own people's convenience. He's using that just to keep them in line. So worship him here. Worship the true God in false ways. That'll be good. And celebrate that he brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He builds two calves, not just one. One for the two sanctuaries he's going to build. He doesn't seem to notice there's a parallel between him and the Exodus generation there. But he does say, hey, I'm going to allow you to continue to worship the true God. You know, the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Only he's not talking about something that happened a thousand years before. He's comparing. You can't believe what these politicians will do to you. And some of these preachers will do it too. 
Jeroboam is actually comparing himself to somebody in that metaphor. Judah, the country they just split from to somebody or something. And Rehoboam, the king, Solomon's son in Jerusalem to somebody. You know who he's comparing himself to in that comparison? He's saying, I'm like Moses. I got you away from the Egypt, the Egyptian dynamics of Judah. You better thank me that I'm leading this northern country that has split from uh, the southern. And he's comparing Rehoboam, Solomon's son, to Pharaoh in that uh, in that metaphor. So Jeroboam set up a worship center in Bethel, or Bethel, and another in Dan. And those were two cities. And that makes sense because uh, there's Bethel and that little square there is where Dan's located. It's way up there. So he's saying, of course, his motivation is he doesn't want his people in and out of Jerusalem because he's afraid the Holy Spirit might speak to them while they're down there, right? So he says, it's too inconvenient if you go all the way down to a different country. You've got to get your papers all fixed up and stuff. So I'm going to put a temple, a mini temple in the south and a mini temple in the north. And so it doesn't matter where you live in my kingdom. It's going to be easier for you to go here or here than down to Jerusalem, where the one place you're supposed to go, as was designed by God himself. So Jeroboam set up a worship center in Bethel and another in Dan. And this was serious sin in God's eyes. The political split was okay. The religious hypocrisy wasn't. But it was convenient and new, so it was popular with the people, right? Jeroboam also built many temples on the high places there in those two cities. to be in, and, and watch this. And to be inclusive, he made priests from all the people, not just those who were actually qualified. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, you got to love American entrepreneurial spirit, but we have people... You know, starting left-handed bowler churches that have no calling, no ordination, no theological knowledge, but they know they don't like the other churches, and nobody's doing anything for the left-handed bowler. So what are we going to do here? You know, it's a problem. There's actually more to the story than just this. Look at Second uh, Chronicles 11. And you guys know that First uh, Kings and Second Chronicles when it comes to Solomon and the aftermath, kind of parallel each other. But sometimes you get some interesting uh, backstory or behind the headline story from one to the other. And if you're in Second Chronicles 11, look at verse 13. Second Chronicles 11. Uh, if you've got the Ryrie Study Bible, it's 684, page 684 for Ryrie Study Bible. If you've got the edition I've got, that is. But... Uh, Second Chronicles 11.13, this is a parallel account, kind of like Matthew and Luke, sometimes give you parallel accounts. And just for the context, verse 5 says, Rehoboam, you know, the king, the son of Saul, who's, or Solomon, excuse me, who's reigning in Jerusalem. Uh, Rehoboam lived in Jerusalem, built cities for the defense of Judah. Verse 13, moreover, the priests and the Levites, okay, the Levites were males that were in the tribe of Levite. They were priest helpers. And Levites who were of the family of Aaron were priests. That that was the uh, way priesthood was determined based on God's pattern given directly in Scripture. Uh, Jeroboam doesn't want to do that in part because all the good priests have already left his country or are in the process of leaving. But watch this. Moreover, the priests and the Levites 
who were in all Israel, including the ten tribes in the north, stood with him, Rehoboam, in the sense that he is, his house is attached to the temple, and at least Rehoboam, who has his weaknesses, had three good years before he went apostate, and during this first phase of his, of his reign, all the priests and the Levites just refused to, to let uh, all of these new, novel, convenient, and popular uh, features of the new religion, doing the right thing the wrong way, they didn't buy into that. So the priests and Levites who were in the northern part of the uh, of Israel at that time and in the northern kingdom, country stood with Rehoboam in Jerusalem from all their districts. For the Levites left their pasture lands and their property in Galilee and other places, came to Judah and to Jerusalem, going down to the country of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. For Jeroboam, the guy we've been reading about in First Kings, and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests, in effect, by basing a uh, demand that they worship in two opposing, competing centers as opposed to the one true sanctuary. The Levites and priests wouldn't do that. That was way beyond what they're willing to do. So they're, they're doing the right thing. And they're leaving, they're, uh, leaving the border, crossing the border, going down to the southern kingdom, which is one reason he's gotta appoint priests from other, other tribes. Uh, he set up, verse 15 says, Jeroboam, the king of the north, who's allowing in the name of inclusion, being inclusive, anybody who wants to be a priest can now, without ordination, calling, or direction, or anything. He set up priests of his own for the high places, for the satyrs and the calves which he had made, those from all the tribes of Israel who... But watch this. In addition to the priests and the Levites, the preachers, you might say, the Bible teachers, in addition to that migration south, those from all the tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom, who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God, that's capital L-O-R-D, the, the Lord God of our salvation, followed them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers in the one place they were supposed to in Jerusalem. They, and, and these folks, the real uh, spiritual remnant of the Jews are migrating south, and they strengthened the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, supported Rehoboam, son of Solomon, for three years. Now, what does that mean? After three years, they just quit? No. Look what happened. This is context. For they walked... That is, the government was actually walking in the ways of David and Solomon for three years. But in chapter 12, verse 1, when the kingdom of Rehoboam had been established and strong for three years, because he was actually trying to do the right thing, he and all of Israel with him forsook the law of God. So he goes apostate too, but it doesn't happen overnight. So you've got to keep an eye, even on the good ones, uh, because sometimes they go bad on you. Go back to 1 Kings 12. We're looking at Jeroboam's spiritually corrupt folly. He marketed religion to make it easy, fun, convenient, even though it's heretical and incorrect. So he says it's just too inconvenient for you to go all the way to Jerusalem three times a year for the required feast. We're only going to have one required feast, and we're going to do it here. (laughs) Three for the price of one, one for the price of three. Worship him here. Uh, Don't go down to Egypt. That's Judah. You know, I'm like Moses, hanging with me. So Jeroboam set up worship center in Bethel. Dan, serious sin. He also built many temples on the high places, and he made the priesthood inclusive, in part because all the legitimate priests had already left. They were leaving the sinking ship, as it were. Now look at this. And Jeroboam appointed a feast. Blanche, there's just one. And there were three required feasts under the law, but Jeroboam, because he's all about making it easy, because he cares for the people. You know, He cares for the people. He wants to make it easy for the people to be spiritual, be committed. Let's have easy commitment here. 
You know, uh, Jeroboam appointed one feast, only required one required feast every year on the fifteenth day of the eighth month. That's interesting because the third and final required feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, were the three required feasts that involved you going to the central sanctuary. We just happened to be in Jerusalem. Bad news for Jeroboam. But it's interesting. The uh, the third feast we've got uh, Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles took place using their uh, religious calendar was on the 15th day of the seventh month. He says, don't worry about those three. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. We're only going to have one uh, feast that's required and it's going to be on the eighth month and based on kind of their uh, seasonal commitment, especially in agricultural economy, several commentators said this would have been a lot easier for the average person to get off on the eighth month as opposed to the seventh month. Okay, uh, It's probably easier for people to take vacation in August as opposed to September nowadays kind of thing, so depending on the cultural thing. So he appoints a day that's easier. One, instead of three times, you've got to leave your homes and travel down to a central sanctuary. Uh, like the feast that was in Judah, kind of like Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles rolled into one, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. And that's a problem, too, because he's not even a priest. He did this in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves he had made. And notice uh, the writer here, these aren't calves of God. These are false gods he himself made with his own hands or had somebody else make for him and pay for him. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places he had made, these priests that aren't really qualified. And he went up to the altar that he had made, in Bethel, on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month he had devised and instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went to the altar to make offerings. So he's doing a lot of religious ritual, Joe, that looks good to the naked eye, but he's doing the right thing the wrong ways for the wrong reasons, and that never works out very well for anyone. So rather than uh, tabernacles as the climactic required feast, he gives you another one, and don't worry about actually obeying God. I'll tell you what you need to know. Uh when spirituality is fast, fun, and easy, run to the exits. Don't just walk away. And it reminds me of all these infomercials. One thing I miss about the Golf Channel now that NBC owns it, and they've really kind of homogenized it and made it real slick, but in the good old days of the Golf Channel, about half the programming were these golf infomercials. And uh, I'm a golfer who have, has played exactly zero times this year. I played three holes with Jamie two weeks ago when we went up there after the baby was born. And not very well. No warm up. Okay. They put new, have you been to uh, Cedar Ridge since they put the new sand in the sand traps, Ken? It's pretty neat, isn't it? And, uh, played three holes. I was in three sand traps. So, but I missed a four footer for a par on the one hole. I actually hit a good shot from, but that didn't, didn't work out well. But, uh, yeah, I'm a golfer and in the old days, the golf channel, about half the programming and it, it's 24 hours a day now. You know, there are, there are channels on your TV that are 24 hours a day. I'm so old, there used to be a test pattern that came on at midnight. And they would start, in Opelaka, I was an early riser, I wake up, you know, I turn the TV on real quietly, I'm like three years old or whatever, and you'd see a test pattern, and then like 6 a.m. they'd come up, and they'd come on, and they'd read something, the announcer would read something legal, and then they would play the national anthem, and they would have the Lord's Prayer. This is on just regular stations. They didn't, we didn't know it was unconstitutional back then to pray, you know, but, uh, as it is now apparently. But, uh, yeah, the old, the old, uh, less, uh, fancy golf channel when it was back in its good days, uh, 
would have like half the programming were these 30 minute infomercials. And even the crummiest golf club in the world, uh, at Jack Ham, you know what I'm talking about? Uh, yeah. What was the name of his driver he was selling? Yeah, the Air Hammer. Uh, Jack Ham was his pseudo golf pro who had this totally illegal. You can't draw, you can't drill holes through a driver. USGA won't let you play with it, but you know, he said you get five, you know, miles an hour faster club at speed. But I mean, I'm so warped. I actually enjoyed those bogus commercial, the infomercials. I mean, 30 second commercials are boring, but at 30 minutes, man, they talk you into almost anything. And, uh, I love that, you know. And, you know, a, a lot of the way I'm seeing churches packaged now reminds me of a bad infomercial. I'm, I'm going to make it easy and fun. And if this is a problem, don't worry about it. And we'll do this. And if you're a left-handed bowler, obviously nobody cares for you because there's no, you know, special discipleship groups just for the left-handed bowlers out there. So we we care. And, um, you know, I'm not saying it's always horrible and bad, but I think a lot of it becomes more like uh, a business model than a spiritual model. And then you meet some of the people who are running these things, and they, they can't think their way out of a simple theological Bible issue at all. They have no clue, man. And it's, it's scary because they get this uh, kind of... Uh, uh, sense of authority and sense of, uh, you know, autonomy. It's not good. But let's say a couple of things real quick, principle-wise, before we close. Uh, number one, quick, easy commitment in the Christian life isn't commitment, you know. That's why, you know what, if you come to TBF every time the uh, major services, and I'm going to say the major services are Sunday morning all the way through second hour and Wednesday night, okay, and there's also other stuff, the ladies' Bible studies, the men's breakfast, we're taking a break until... Next year, and then we're going to quit doing it. Now we're going to we're going to keep trying. I'm going to keep trying to get you men here for fellowship. I guess I haven't made it easy and convenient enough, so I apologize. Not really. So, uh, but yeah, we're going to continue to try to find a way to get all of us men together so we can have better and longer gripe sessions. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But uh, yeah, it's, it's craziness. Uh, Easy commitment isn't commitment. Just like sacrifices that don't involve any sacrifice aren't sacrifices. You may call them sacrifices, but they're not really sacrifices. Easy, quick commitment is just personal convenience, and that's good in a lot of areas. I want to be convenient, uh, made just my life to be as convenient as possible. But the weird thing is, I'm so old. I remember when Robert Schuler, who's you know is now dead, but he ended up having financial problems as well as major theological problems. Uh, he started this drive, he, he bought this drive-in theater in Southern California, and on Sunday, Saturday nights, so, because Sunday morning is so inconvenient to have to you actually get up on the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection, and actually worship. You don't want to do that. We'll do it on Saturday nights, and you, you're supposed to drive into this drive-in movie theater, and he promised you'd be in and out in an hour or less. He'd do everything he needed, you know, these, whatever service you wanted, he would do a service for an hour or less. And, you know, when that happened in, the, like, the 1960s, evangelicals thought, A, he's a heretic, you know, we're not sure we can trust him, he sounds like a con man, and B, none of us would ever do anything like that to draw a crowd, right? Then you fast forward 30 or 40 years, and people all over the evangelical map are coming up with even wackier things than that, if it's possible, and it just kind of uh, blows my mind. Most of that stuff wouldn't fly in Duncan, but in bigger cities it's quite popular, and... But watch this, Blanche. It was very popular to have two uh, worship centers, wasn't it? It was so popular once it started, they never stopped, you know. But uh, drew a nice big market share. But it wasn't ideal. 
So beware of that. And don't water down commitment in the Christian life to something that's easy for you. If it's easy, it's not commitment yet. Okay. Now the problem with people who buy into this as a paradigm, they either quit it at their commitment to that thinking or that organization, parachurch or church, ends after three months or three years when the novelty wears off, or they hang in there and they have this smug pseudo-spiritual superiority because we have more money and more people and more cars than you've got, so we've got to be better than you. You're going, I didn't think we were like keeping score like that. I just refused to do that. Uh, even true religion, I don't really like using the term religion for Christianity because I think the world religions are all telling people to do stuff to make brownie points with however they define God, whereas Christianity is God saying, you can do nothing for me that I need or to save yourself. So I'll come down and do all the work for you. I love you in your sin. Not your sin. I love you in your sin enough to come in the person of Jesus Christ to pay your sin debt. And if you'll accept me, if you'll trust me for it, I'll save you. You know, that's a whole different kind of paradigm than any other world religion. So I don't even like to use the word religion. But Jeroboam is starting with the worship of the real God. He's just packaging in such a way you can't really see it anymore. But even true religion, Christianity, can be misused to mislead well-meaning but naive people. I would say one of my heroes in the Bible is that little widow who puts her two cents in the offering place in the temple that's subsidizing the Sadducees. Okay, and she, But that's the only visible thing she's got, and it is a structure commanded by the Old Testament. So even though it's run by a bunch of corrupt religious leaders that are in the process of wanting to lynch Jesus, when he sees her do that, he says she gave more than anybody because she came, gave from the heart. So God sanctified, Jesus said, well, plus, A plus on that because I know what she's doing. If I was Jesus, I would have slapped that two cents out of her hands and said, you can't subsidize this corrupt edifice here. They're about to kill the Lord Jesus. But he sees it differently because he's gracious and he looks at the heart. So uh, God will take care of those little old ladies who are sending Social Security checks to people like uh, Robert Shuler and his ilk. But still, it's, it's sad to see. They ought to be plugged into a local church that would actually do them some good. And of course, doing the right things the wrong way is always a bad thing. Just always a bad thing. And quite often we do that anyway. Uh, you know, uh, when Jonathan was like three years old, he thought it was just absolutely crazy that he hated chicken, but he loved chicken McNuggets, and his dad hated cheese, but his dad loved Cheetos. And he would literally walk up to people like at Kmart and say, hey, hey, you know what? I don't like chicken, but I like chicken McNuggets, and my dad doesn't like cheese, but he likes Cheetos. He just thought that was such an amazing thing that people would want to know that. Um, but as I like to say, you know, we're, we're kind of in a culture now that wants easy, fast commitment and easy, fast, don't think, we'll tell you what to think about the Bible kind of thinking. And so we're doling out kind of Bible McNuggets to a culture that is being attacked at every possible level. And people, all they've got is a water gun. They don't have any real weapons. You know, they haven't been used how to use the sword. Now, James is a paradigm buster. He actually has a youth group that is centered on the Word of God and the Gospel of Grace, you know. And a lot of the youth groups in Duncan, I'm not talking about anybody particularly in Duncan necessarily, but so much of big, popular, megachurch evangelicalism, if you can say that, call it that, is kind of, I think, a bad imitation of the real thing. But it's fun, it's easy, it's got a buzz, it's got a, you know, a lot of bells and whistles and people love it. But it's doing the right thing for the wrong reason. 
Uh, let me finish this way. The reason that Solomon and the aftermath is what we're looking at here today is ultimately so important isn't just because of what he did or didn't do as a king and what his uh, reign led to. The real reason he's so important is because of the way God used him as one link in a series of generations to get Jesus Christ here so he could die for Michelle's sins and Angie's sins and, and Brad's sins. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew that starts the New Testament starts with his genealogy that highlights Solomon and ends up with whom? Ends up with Jesus. And when you look at the Old Testament, talking about Solomon, he's the son of David, when talking about who the Messiah is going to be as it's being predicted by the Old Testament looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, it's very specific. But beyond that, a lot of the details are given, but it all center on the person of Jesus as we said last week, uh, the Old Testament prophets talked about one Messiah with two advents, with two big functions. He came the first time as a lamb, as a sacrificial animal to pay the sin debt of the world in our place, to do what we could never do for ourselves. And we're promised that this old broken world that's full of cancer and terrorism and abortions and pornography and drug uh, dealers and wars and all kinds of horrible things that happen, uh, is going to come to an abrupt end, supernaturally, undeniably, visibly, by the second advent of Christ. He's going to come a second time, not as a lamb, but as a lion. And so the cool thing is, as we live here uh, in the last days of November 2016, we can look back at the fulfilled prophecies about the first coming of Jesus, and they were fulfilled literally, even as we look forward to a literal fulfillment of the yet unfulfilled prophecies about the lion function of our Lord Jesus. But here's our bottom line, and we will close. Uh, Jesus comes not just to show us the way, and James has done a wonderful job. Now, the one thing that we didn't like about that song, you know, Lord, we lift your name on high. We, we don't want to say he came from heaven and earth to show the way. I mean, that's what all the religious leaders claim to do, Carla. They're claiming to show you the way. Show you the way you can save yourself. <laughs> Showing the way you can fix yourself. Uh, somebody saw that and said, no, we're going to sing that. He didn't come to show the way. He came to be the way. He said, he didn't say, I'm going to show you the way, the truth, and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So this is the good news of the gospel, even though we've all sinned and come short of God's standard because Christ died for our sins. We don't have to die in our sins and at the end of his one time for all forever atoning sacrifice, look at Hebrews 10, hits you, it tells you that eight times or something like that. Uh, he says, it is finished, which is the Greek word, one word that means paid in full. And then of course, you know, the saving virtue of Christ revolves around the death and the resurrection because I, as we like to say, a dead savior can't get you from Duncan, uh, to heaven. Can't get you from Dallas to heaven. I can't even get you from Mount Everest to heaven. And you're closer when you're on Mount Everest. You're five miles closer, right? But the resurrected one is the only one who can. So watch my acronym here. SAS stands for what Jesus did on the cross. Substitutionary Atoning Sacrifice. LBSR stands for a literal bodily. It involved his physical body, which is transformed. Supernatural resurrection. He wasn't just resuscitated to die again. He was resurrected. His spirit went back into his body, transformed. 
He gets a body like we're all going to get eventually if we're believers in Him. And so, He's the basis of salvation. He died to pay our sin debt. He rose supernaturally to validate He can give eternal life. So how do we access that? Okay, what what must I do to be saved? Somebody asked Paul in Roman in Acts sixteen thirty, and Paul said, "Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and your whole house can be saved, men and women, boys and girls, if they'll believe too." I love what Romans four five says. If you've never trusted Christ, uh, don't walk out of here with more information about Solomon than you had two months ago. Walk out of here with the Savior in your heart. But to the one who does not work, who says, number one, I'm guilty, and it's on me, and it's my fault, and I can't fix it. That's that's a hard thing for people to see. The Holy Spirit's got to show you that. But the one who doesn't work, doesn't think they can fix it, doesn't think that being more religious or being nicer or stop smoking or something is going to save you. But to the one who does not work, but who believes, who trusts in Him, the one who justifies the ungodly, and I put in parentheses, the him is a capital. I'm talking about Jesus Christ and his, what does SAS stand for again? Substitute. He did that for you, Wanda. Atoning sacrifice. At one means to bring two warring parties together. He paid the debt that allows God to connect without us without compromising his righteousness. LBSR, literal bodily supernatural resurrection. But to the one who recognizes his or her sin and guilt, punts away any hopes of trying to save him or herself, doesn't try to work for it, but trusts in him, Jesus, the one who justifies the ungodly. Who's the only kind of person God uh, in Christ justifies? Ungodly people. That's the only people that are that are uh, savable. And the good news is we're all ungodly. That person's faith in Christ is reckoned as righteousness. So as you read your Old Testament, let the life of Solomon be an example. There's a lot of cool stuff to learn in the Old Testament by these characters, some good lessons, some bad lessons, but it's all part of a much bigger story over thousands of years to get Jesus here. And I think it's easy to live in 2016 and say, well, we read all this stuff in the Bible, and I believe it, but why isn't God doing anything now? Uh, that's exactly what the shepherds were saying right before the angel told them that Jesus was born. They say, man, nothing ever exciting happens anymore. It's been 430 years since we had a prophet. We've got this scripture, and it's great, and we believe it, but God's not doing anything now. I guess it'll happen 100 years from now. And he's doing something big even right now. It's our time to make church history, okay? Uh, to embrace Christ as Savior if you haven't, to be committed to Christ. And if it's easy and fun, you're not committed yet, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, let your word take... Uh, root into our hearts and help each one of us, including this uh, preacher, see uh, real specific, concrete ways that we can uh, be more what you want us to be in the way we think, the way we act, the way we respond to you and others. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.